Well, the Lord pushed us inside tonight. It's a great inside, you know. Looks great in here. <laughs> the, um, <clears throat> the overarching message and takeaway from last Sunday evening or Sunday morning, Revelation 1, was to impress upon us the overwhelming power and authority and, and, and love and graciousness of the risen, exalted Christ and for his loving purpose for the church. But now, with uh, the second chapter, we come to the first of the seven letters uh, to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Words that, um, that um, our Lord gave to the Apostle John to write down and send to, the, to each of the churches. But we know that that number seven uh, is a number of completion and it's a universal number and and it assures us that what Jesus said to those churches, he's saying to us as well. Indeed, he includes it in the scriptures. The admonitions, the instruction, the encouragement in these letters are fully intended for the church today. So we start with this first letter, the Church of Ephesus. Let's read the text. Ephesians, excuse me, Revelation chapter 2. And we'll look at the... Uh, first seven verses of that. Hear now the word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have, uh, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ear, an ear, let him hear what the churches, uh, the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. <clears throat> so, uh, in each of these letters, the uh, apostle follows a similar pattern with four elements. Very, first of all, an introduction, usually a very telling introduction, an analysis, an exhortation, and a promise. Well, <clears throat> so then, what is good. Um, living in the city of Ephesus would not have been easy for any Christian uh, to, uh, to deal with. Um, Ephesus was um, the largest city in Asia Minor, the center of the Roman administration of the province. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was a port city. It was a sophisticated city. It was a trade, uh, city of trade and commerce. 
It was the location, and some of you will know this, uh, of the Temple of Diana, a popular cult that was celebrated and observed throughout Asia and played a large, huge part in the social and economic life of the city of Ephesus. There was, at the same time, at least three other temples in Ephesus constructed for the purpose of honoring and worshiping various uh, Roman emperors. Uh, Ephesus was the center of what we would today call black magic. It was a center of serious idolatry. But in spite of all this, perhaps because of all this, uh, the Apostle Paul recognizes it as a strategic uh, outpost for the Christian church. He himself spent three years, three years was a long time in the Apostle Paul's ministry, uh, in Ephesus. And you may also remember that he was forced to flee there because of um, persecution and rioting. Uh, Timothy worked in Ephesus, as did Apollos and uh, Aquila and Priscilla. According to the to tradition, at the end of his life, even the Apostle John. So, to this day, God does not shy away from hard places in the world. In fact, he calls his people to establish uh, churches in places like Ephesus. There's a church in Eritrea. There's a church in South Sudan, in Nigeria, in Syria, in Iran, in Iraq, in, in uh, Muslim and Hindu uh, India, in North Korea. Places where Christians are being cruelly persecuted right now. But God calls his people to minister in those places because he has precious souls for whom Christ died to call to himself in those hard places. And when he says to the Ephesian church in chapter 2, I know your works, we shouldn't think for a moment that uh, the Lord is sitting in some sort of comfortable HQ casually skimming over reports about struggling Christians far away he'd never even seen or visited. No, his angel, the angel of the church of Ephesus, represented by one of the stars in his right hand, stood guard over his people there. In fact, our Lord describes himself in verse 1 as personally walking among the golden lampstands. In other words, Jesus was continuously visiting among his churches, his people. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. So, exactly <clears throat> what is it that Jesus knows about the church of Ephesus? Um, the church of Ephesus um, understood that a healthy church could not, have un, could not harbor uh, unhealthy uh, doctrines or beliefs uh, or, or in any way be purveyors of those doctrines. Would it be healthy if this church, if faith church, had its midst a number of factions who believed that there was some other authoritative book besides the Bible or, or perhaps a faction of members who denied the divinity of Christ or the miracles or his literal resurrection? Would it be good if there were some, some very uh, legalistic elders who appeared to be questioning the salvation of anyone who didn't dress in a certain way? You know, long dresses, tied-up shirts, and homeschool their children. Um, there was nothing like that in Ephesus at all. The church in Ephesus was careful about what it's taught and modeled. I don't believe they, they micromanaged people's lives, but they were careful to see that what was preached and taught in the church was good and healthy and biblical. 
I don't doubt they remember the Apostle Paul on his way to Jerusalem, who had gathered, you may recall, and warned the Ephesian elders, saying, I know that after my departure, fierce or savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among them your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So the church was very careful and wary. In fact, John tells us they couldn't even bear with those who were evil. Uh, Their righteous souls, like the righteous soul of Lot living in Sodom, was tormented by the filthy lives and lawless deeds of those living around them in Ephesus. Uh, We're told that the elders of the church uh, carefully tested those who came into their midst, naming themselves to be apostles, but were not. God bears a proving testimony of their doctrinal care. In verse 6, he says, I I know you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's a good thing to hate what God hates and to love what God loves. We'll never be certain altogether uh, about uh, these Nicolaitans, who they were, what they believed. But it's enough to know that the very name Nicolaos in Greek means destroyer of the people. It's enough to know the influence of their evil teaching had spread all over Asia and that God hated it. It behooves the church to be careful of its doctrine. Um, Our Lord was well aware of something else. He, He knew that these people were courageously bearing up under the pressures of living in Ephesus. Verse 3, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. The believers in Ephesus had not caved in to the powerful secular influences and false religious influences of their city. They were not about to be, uh, they refused to be sucked into or conformed to the world around them. And and who knows what pressures uh, they might have been subjected to. They would have stood out like a sore thumb. Their their godliness, their sexual uh, modesty, their refusal to participate in idolatry uh, and the the polytheism and the degeneracy of that city. They would have galled their neighbors and brought all sorts of troubles upon themselves. But they endured it all patiently, holding fast their belief and their commitments. Um, uh, The Lord of the church knew this He was there amongst them, strengthening them and heartily commending them. But, but, our Lord also reveals a very deep concern about this church. We know what was good, what was bad. Well, in spite of all of that which was good, the commendable, their doctrinal vigilance and their patient endurance, Jesus draws the bead on their one terrible flaw, something that had already infected the church. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you abandon the love you had at first. Somehow, they had lost their first love for the Lord Jesus who had found them and rescued them and set them apart and saved them. And a church that doesn't love the Lord usually doesn't know how to love each other very well either. And our Lord regards this as an absolutely fatal flaw. He will not have a church that bears his name to be a loveless church. Look down at verse 5, Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from... Where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. 
If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Well, as it happens, we know that in fact, sometime after the second century, the church of Ephesus had disappeared. So there must have been no change, no repentance. The church must have not given heed to those words and returned their love of Christ. One traveler many years ago reported, quote, that a small railway station, a hotel, and a few poor dwellings were all that remained, a city in ruins with no church at all. Another traveler visiting in the village found only three Christians there, and these had sunk into such ignorance and apathy as scarcely to have ever heard the name of Paul and John. The late Westminster professor, uh, Dr. John Skilton, once personally told me of having visited the site of Ephesus and finding nothing but a swamp, a bog filled with croaking frogs. Brothers and sisters, it is impossible to understate or overstate uh, the centrality of love in the Church of Christ. Love is the royal law of the Church. God so loved the world that He sent His Son Jesus to die for our sins and gave His own life to win loveless, selfish people to Himself. We are above all else to love God and our neighbor. We're to love one another within the church without qualification. It's not too strong to say that where there is no love, there is no true church. The Apostle Paul, or John, excuse me, we shouldn't be surprised having received this, uh, was particularly strong on this point. Beloved, he writes in his first epistle, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We cannot love one another without first receiving a heart of love from Christ Uh, Nothing better uh, disproves our claim to love Christ than our failure to love the Lord Jesus and to love one another, especially those within the church. In fact, the Apostle Paul devoted an entire chapter, the 13th chapter, his first letter to the Corinthians, on the necessity of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love... If I'm a a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith and so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Christ's warning to Ephesus, writes John Stott, is just as appropriate to us today. Many churches all over the world today have ceased truly to exist. Their buildings often remain intact, their ministers minister, and their congregations congregate, but their lampstand has been removed. The church is plunged into darkness. No glimmer of light radiates from it. It has no light because it has no love. Well, how do we guard our love for Christ? Uh, What is needed? Uh, What does Christ tell us? He says, remember... Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. So, what is it that we are to remember? Well, let me start by simply saying this. And I don't believe this is just a 
side point. <laughs> um, a loving church must take great care, above all, to pass on their love for Christ to the children of the church. Now that raises some questions. Do you have a warm, visible love for the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it cooled over? Has it become so quiet and respectable and private and, and, and so diminished that if children or grandchildren or children watching you on Sunday uh, after Sunday in church cannot even see it in action? I saw a world map uh, a few weeks ago. I think I may have mentioned this um, on a Wednesday night. It showed all the nations of the world colored in in different colors. And countries that had no gospel whatsoever, Muslim countries, Hindu communist countries, were marked in black. Places where the church was very healthy, in parts of Africa, for example, uh, were marked uh, in, in bright red. But many nations, uh, mostly in Western Europe, Great Britain, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Scandinavia, were shown in a somber, dark gray. What happened to those nations? They were once hotbeds of the Reformation, weren't they? They were places where, where they were sending out missionaries, where they were writing books, where there were great revivals going on. There were vibrant churches uh, throughout the world. But today, uh, now those churches, many of them are turned into museums. Uh, their majestic cathedrals are overrun with tourists come to take photographs of the architecture. And the missionaries in those places struggle to establish small congregations which meet in homes and storefronts, croaking frogs. What happened? Well, William Hendrickson suggests that the church at Ephesus was more than 40 years old when Christ dictated this letter to the church but now another generation had arisen. Their children did not experience the, that intense enthusiasm, that spontaneity, that, that ardor which, has been, which had been revealed um, by their parents when the latter first came into contact with the gospel. It must be a great concern for every church that the zeal of those who come to Christ or confess Christ as young people must be replicated to their children and not grow cold. The, the fact is that a, a, a warm love for Christ, which also exhibits um, a, a warm love for one another within the congregation, commends the gospel powerfully to our children. When they see us singing joyfully to Christ, when they see us making sacrifices, no, we didn't buy all the things that we could have bought. Why? Because we're giving it to the church. We're sending them to Christian school and we're doing other things that other people don't do. When they see that, they think, this is real. This must be real. You see... The gospel must be caught as well as taught. A loveless church, however doctrinally correct it may be, will attract no one, least of all our own covenant children, unless they see a warm love for Christ and see it clearly. They don't have to dig around and ask a lot of questions. It's just there. 
So let us who've been saved, who confess Christ at, at whatever age, remember what a lovely thing Christ did for us. Let us never forget where we came from and how sweet it was to, to meet Jesus or to confess Jesus as our Savior. So if we forget our first love, we will be a loveless people uh, with um, uh, nothing to share with anyone. Well, how else must we preserve uh, our love for Christ? Uh, Look again at verse 5. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now, repentance means turning away from that coldness and disinterest and bare intellectualism and nominal in name only faith, which is a disgrace, uh, and turning to um, a love for Christ and, and to do those works. And what are the works we must do? I'm going to suggest three things uh, to maintain this warm faith uh, that uh, shines brightly on our children and on our community. First, we must love God by loving God's Word. We love God by loving God's Word. A dry, cursory reading of the Bible that fails to inflame our hearts must be repented of immediately. If you find yourself reading the Bible and it's really dry, you should stop and ask the Lord to forgive you and give you grace. Luther said, whenever I feel that happen, he said, I run to my prayer book and I pray to the Lord right away. He, doesn't, he knew how desperate he was for the Lord to give him grace. Um, if, if you're reading the Bible, it's no different than reading some crime novel or romance story. Or, or if you're reading scripture as only a very occasional thing or a very irregular thing, you must repent of that. And ask God to give you a new heart and a renewed love for his word. God, the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, has bound himself to the word of God. And he will bless it to you in in amazing ways. Uh, He will bless uh, the word uh, in your hearts. Um, I I sometimes tell a little story or illustration. And maybe, maybe some, I don't know if anyone over here will remember that, Marilla. But I, I draw a big picture of a wood screw. And, um, and, you know, it comes down to a point, a wood screw. And the, at the bottom is a person with a screw going into him. And at the top is a screwdriver. Uh, you turn the screw with the screw. The screwdriver represents the Holy Spirit. And the screw represents um, the Word. And, and, and we're, the, we're the ones <laughs> that get pierced. Uh, by the word, through the power of the Spirit. That's what God does. Children and visitors of this church must find a people who clearly know and love the word of God. Now, that is the work we must do. It will save our church. We must also love God's people. We love his word and we love his people. Uh, we love the Lord Jesus when we clearly and transparently and actively share that love with one another in word and in deed. We pray for one another. We show concern for one another. We serve one another. I see that happening in this church in a wonderful way. And we must do that and and, uh, concern ourselves with one another. Uh, If our lives become so busy and so preoccupied with ourselves or even with our families that we fail to practically serve the body of Christ, we have failed the Lord and we failed his church. And we must repent of that wasting disease and sacrificially begin to serve one another because anything short of that is just not Christianity. 
Uh, even the persecutors of, of the early Christian church were compelled to admit, behold, how those Christians love one another. Um, Christians and visitors um, uh, must find a congregation that clearly loves one another. That's the work we must do. Uh, to love God's people and above all, love one another. That will save the church. So, loving uh, the Lord Jesus, going back to our first love, means, first of all, loving his word, loving his people, and for a third thing, loving his worship. It's a hollow thing to say that we uh, love the Lord if we spend Sundays alone with ourselves and in our own business or even with our families at home instead of meeting to worship God in the congregation of his people. That is not loving God. That is a very selfish thing. Well, you know, I have a fine time meeting with God out in the woods and just me and God and it's all lovely. You know, that is so, it's so selfish. <laughs> what about all those other people? <laughs> they need you too. <laughs> Get to church <laughs> and worship the Lord uh, with others as well. Um, the Lord gave us this day, the, the Christian Sabbath. Yes, the entire day to direct our hearts to him and especially in worship. It's, it's, it's a gift. It's not an obligation. Uh, God does this wonderful thing in, in, in the Ten Commandments. He says, work six, get one free. It's a gift. Um, and, but if it feels not like a gift, if it feels like an obligation, uh, then maybe your heart is growing cold uh, uh, to the Lord. And you need to repent of that and God ask God to give you and to forgive you and and ask him to help you remember a better day. Wasn't there a day when you loved to worship uh, the Lord Jesus? Wasn't there a time when you remembered delighting to stand with the congregation of God's people? Remember where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Ask God to give you a heart of worship. If you don't feel like it when you're driving to church, you're thinking, ay, ay, ay. ask God to, to say, Lord, give me a heart of it just shows you how bad my heart is. <laughs> I can't even worship. Help me worship. And, and ask the Lord to help you with that and, and uh, to gather with others. Uh, children and visitors of this church must find a congregation that clearly loves to worship God, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and they, and they love to pray together, and they just can't bear it that COVID is keeping them separated and wearing silly masks all the time. And, and, but they do it. You know, but we love to pray together. We love to, to hear, sing and and hear the word together and worship together to sacri- uh, celebrate the sacraments together. I, this morning I was there to baptize my 19th grandchild, Ada Catherine Church, in, uh, her, her, in her, um, uh, her church, her PCA church in Hershey. And it was, it was lovely. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> um, this is the work we must do. We must worship God with sincere enthusiasm. Worship. We'll keep our love from going cold and save our church. But our Lord ends with a promise. So we need to conclude in like manner. I'm almost finished. Um, look at verses, uh, look at the final verse, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant uh, to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
Now, that's actually a very striking promise. Um, in, the, in, the, in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. We all know this, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, which Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat from, and the tree of life, uh, the fruit of which was theirs whenever they wanted it. But, when they disobeyed God, when they chose to rebel against God, seeking to make themselves like God and running their own lives without Him, they were cursed. And God cursed them and drove them out of the garden. And He set this cherubim with a flashing sword which guarded the way back to the tree of life because now that became the new forbidden fruit. Now, this is important to understand. God's purpose in the curse. You may have said to yourself, well, why, did God, why was God so harsh? Uh, God's purpose in the curse uh, was, it was to actually to, uh, to use the curse and the miseries of this life and the fear of judgment to drive the proud sons of, uh, and daughters of Adam and Eve to repentance and faith. To make them throw up their hands and say, I can't do it. And it would drive their hopeless hearts to the loving cross of Christ. That's what it was about. But now Jesus promises his beloved sons and daughters the right to eat from the tree of life, the paradise of God, in the paradise of God. The blessings of the first creation lost by man will be restored in fuller measure and the new heavens and the new earth, which is the paradise of God. And uh, this tree uh, of life represents eternity with Jesus, with all the blessings and all the healing fullness of Christ. And it's reserved for the ones who conquer. Uh, for the one who stands firm to the end uh, and, and does not lose his first love. Um, who will not let his heart grow cold against the Lord Jesus in this short, difficult life. Whatever your circumstances, whatever the disappointments and challenges you face from day to day, you simply must persevere in obedient love to Christ. Listen to me. Nobody's love suddenly grows cold. No church abandons its love in a second or in a single failure or catastrophic of sin. It's always a process. It's always a continuous process of personal and corporate failure and refusal to love the Lord Jesus. To love the Lord Jesus is not a pitter-patter in your heart. It's something you do the way you love your wife. How do you love your wife? You do loving things. You love the Lord Jesus by loving him through worshiping him and loving his word and loving his people uh, and, and, and doing things that you know please him. And when we love the Lord Jesus, we are persevering. Um, that's what we must do obediently. Uh, loving his word, loving his worship, and sacrificially loving his people. Our faith grows cold, in other words, when we neglect the means of grace. When we fail to remove ourselves each day off the throne and put Jesus uh, in his place as Savior and Lord of our lives. So let us, let us hold fast what is good the doctrines and teachings of the church which we must honor and protect, loving God, loving one another, and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we 
we know that it's easy for our hearts to grow cold in all of the busyness and sometimes the tragedies and the hardness of life. Lord, will you protect us and keep us, help us to purpose in our hearts, uh, to grasp hold of you through your word and through your worship and through the loving acts of service to your people. And Lord, will you uh, keep that love for Christ and that love uh, for your way uh, alive and bright in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.